Who, who we rang up, I'd sent an email out to say, look, this is what's going on down here. And he rang up to see how his tenant was going. And we said, look, actually, they're OK. They had actually rung in to say that this scenario had happened with their work, but they're, they're OK. And then he told me that he had basically lost all of his hours at work and he didn't know what he was going to do. And, you know, he asked about the tenant first, and but to then ex- explain his scenario, you're like, that is so kind of you to consider them when you're the one that is suffering. I love these types of stories. When someone does what might seem like a little thing, a little check-in, but its impact checks out much bigger. It almost seems that even though there is this big weight hanging over all of our heads right now, People are thinking about others more than they did before. Is it almost like we only really tune in to other people's emotions when there's some sort of trauma or disaster? Hey, I'm Penny Terry and I'm back for another episode of Health Speak. And just in case you're thinking, oh, I should be doing more for other people, I wonder if we all feel this responsibility at the moment. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the different ways that we can help others because support looks different everywhere. For Bianca Welsh, who's one of the people we've been following in this podcast, she works in the tourism and hospitality industry and she knows what it's like to feel that weight of responsibility for others. I think trying to remind everyone that this is temporary, that there is another side of this pandemic, although that's yet to be seen when that will, that side will be, but I think trying to keep as positive as possible. And that was really exhausting. I, I've spoken about it a couple of times um, with colleagues of the leadership fatigue in that we were trying so hard to be the positive ones, to be upbeat, to be okay with the state that we're in. And to come up with ways of keeping the team engaged, keeping the community interested in what we're doing, um, trying to be as innovative as possible. So it was really, really quite exhausting. We were doing a lot of comms, so just keeping in the loop um, just by email with the team as much as we could and as much as was um, necessary as well, not like a bombarding the team, but just trying to keep them uh assured that we are fighting as hard as we can to keep the business alive and sustainable and that there's a job for us all to go back to at the end of this crazy time and um, you know trying to come up with creative ways of keeping the team engaged and connected still so particularly those that weren't eligible for JobKeeper and weren't working at all we would do like a Zoom meeting and we'd set I'd set a training topic um, so pick someone out of the group to do a five-minute presentation on a topic you know it could be a producer or you know the history of restaurants or a wine um, and that was really nice to get everyone to see you know everyone loved to see each other's faces uh, and that was really nice um, and then when we came back when we were able to start um, you know, takeaway was getting busier so we were able to kind of bring a few more people in and then when we came back to dining in and we had like a quick um, socially distanced meeting with the dinner team and it was only like six of us but we all got we all like teared up because it was like oh this feels like normal like it was um 
Yeah, and the, I, I remember looking in the kitchen the first day of dining in or the day before when all the chefs were in there prepping and it just looked heaven. I, I just remember standing back going, that is the best thing I could see right now. And to set up the restaurant, to set the tables was just like so enjoyable. And I cried the first customers that came in and sat down to eat dinner. Like, it's so, you know, and yeah. And what did they, what was their response? Well, it was really odd because um, they were, I, I don't think they understood the gravity. I guess they weren't, in, you know, involved in industry at all. And then sort of, they were using up a, an old voucher. <laughs> that they had and I don't think they had perhaps I don't dine out that often so they kind of weren't as excited then we got a couple more tables came in they were just like so excited to be out and eating dinner not in their lounge room <laughs> how or what role do you think workplaces play always but particularly during a time like this in keeping an eye on the well-being and, and mental health of their employees it's a huge part of keeping people connected and it can be people's therapy. You know, I talk about mental health a lot in all sorts of spaces and places and I could talk about it all day. And um, those that are suffering from a mental illness or don't have the best mental health, and we do need to remember that it's defined separately, um, that work can be a really great therapy. I think personally and professionally in my experience um, that the people that have a workplace where they feel comfortable and supported and that they can communicate, it has to be a two-way street, um, that that person is, you know, good at communicating how they're feeling or how they're going on a particular day or a particular week. Um, But if they are able to go and do their job to at least some capacity that is still beneficial to the business and to themselves, of course, um, is incredibly valuable to society, to the economy, to productivity, to that person, to their family, to their friends. It just allows them to still feel uh, like they're capable of being who they are. What do you think the chances are that during a pandemic it might force um, employers to think differently about people who might be dealing with uh, mental health issues, wherever they may be along that spectrum? Um, I hope that it will open up employers' eyes that perhaps weren't as aware of uh, mental illness and poor mental health and perhaps get a bit of insight because we've been forced into this isolation and situations that we would never have expected to be forced into. And I think um, particularly in the hospitality industry, I think a lot of people have had to slow down in some ways. I mean, I know I said before I was working the most I have ever done before, but it was like a, a different because you're not surrounded by people, you're working, but it's often kind of lonely work in that you're just with your laptop or a Zoom meeting or only a very small group of people and, um, you know, there's shorter and sharper service times where you're around people. So you do have a lot more time to sort of stop and smell the roses and, and think. Um, so I really hope that by having a personal experience for a lot of people out there that they can maybe have a bit of a glimpse into those people that really suffer poor mental health and and illness that can hopefully put that experience to good use and just to be more compassionate. I think that's a lot of what um, the mental health world needs is just more compassion to understand. Once you've walked in someone else's shoes, you understand so much more. 
you remember we talked about this in a previous episode? This idea that perhaps we're all a bit more in tune with our own mental health right now? And does that make us more considerate or understanding of how others might be doing? And look, even if it does, there's still another step because even when you recognise that someone might not be at their best, it can still be tricky to know what to say. So let's get the 101 on the check-in conversation from our favourite mental health clinician, Caroline Fain. I think it's actually just a really good habit to check in with your loved ones. Give them a ring anyway. Um, Because I think, you know, as I've spoken to before about Penn, I think one really lovely thing about COVID, I can't believe I said that in a sentence, um, is people are more interested in their well-being. So why wouldn't we actually just check in on our loved ones anyway? Um, And when you say, hey, how are you going? It's not a stock standard. Yeah, good, thanks. It's a real, no, really, how are you going? Um, And then I think if you're really worried about somebody and they give you the answer, yeah, yeah, fine, fine, but you know they're not, um, it's okay for you to then take the next step, which is be really honest with them about why you think they might not be travelling okay. So it might be things like, oh, I haven't seen you lately. Um, you haven't been um, you haven't been picking up your phone or w- whatever the situation might be, and being really honest about why you think your friend or loved one might be struggling, and then it's asking um, if they're not comfortable talking to you. Is there somebody else who they could? check in with Um, because that's important that you don't take it personally when someone you know and love doesn't want to talk to you (laughs) they might want to talk to someone else but they might not want to talk to you so it's not just asking one question there are a few other bits which is really being honest about what you've noticed Um, and if they then don't want to talk linking them in with somebody else who they'll talk to and then helping them seek help and we know research tells us that um, people are more likely to get help if that person who's checking in with them actually goes along with them um, and really helps them engage with somebody that can also be really important. When you're having that check-in conversation, before when we were talking about judgment and how you can respectfully talk to people, you talked about we statements to make it less blamey. When we're having these conversation checking in, I noticed that you use the the I statement, I've noticed this, I've noticed that you're doing that, Mm. as to not blame them, you're doing this, you're doing that. Mm. Are, are, Are I statements important there? Yes. I think when we're talking about a shared responsibility, we can talk use we. Um, but when it's things that we are noticing in someone else, um, I think then it's important to say I. Um, so rather than, well, you're not doing this and you're not doing that and why, isn't, why aren't you dropping your kids off on time to school? What's that about? Um, is that, oh, look, I'm, I, I'm just noticing this and, and I'm feeling worried because then um, – it can feel less confronting um, and it can feel more gentle and, and comes from a place of kindness. Now that is a tip that will make a huge difference and just a little tweak that can help us have check-in conversations that are valuable rather than critical. And perhaps one of the reasons that these skills are so important in our COVID kits right now is that a lot of the places that we were used to going to have these sorts of check-ins 
are a little bit out of whack at the moment. Many groups or clubs have had a hiatus, some are still having to catch up online, some aren't catching up at all, and not everyone has returned, even if they were able. Nicholas Hookway is a sociologist at the University of Tasmania, who we met last episode. His research is about loneliness. And all these social groups and clubs, he says, can play a huge part in our well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Sporting clubs, community volunteering, book clubs, all those different ways that we do community um, that we connect with others have obviously been severely impacted by lockdowns and by restrictions and that's where I think people have felt felt that ac- acutely. We, we, we know the important role that they play and how the, the what we call social capital, the, the way that it helps people get connected, uh, it helps people get jobs. There's this great great case study on um, the Bernie Football Club about how every single player in that um, team and that was part of that club had a job. And and this is in the northwest coast of Taz, which has the highest rate of unemployment in the country. So what was about that group? So there's interesting evidence, uh, important evidence about the role that those types of organisations play. And in a pre-COVID world, there is concerns that some of those spaces uh, are weakening or declining in our society. Um, And, of course, now this is uh, exacerbated by the restrictions around COVID-19. So some would suggest, you know, that we are already a lonely society and that this makes us even more more lonely. Um, But we don't want to get too too negative about it and um I, I think there's some at an individual level there's things that we can do i mean i know in my own life you know thinking about how you can connect with your neighbors you know we've lived ne- we have the neighbors that have lived next door to us an elderly couple in their late 70s and early 80s we've lived next door to them for nearly 10 years and we've barely exchanged a word um and COVID actually was a great impetus to change that. And we did actually just before just before COVID hit, we, we had a morning tea. Um, that meant we had that relationship in place. And we went over, left a note and said, look, if you folks need any help with your groceries, with your um, with your shopping, let us know. You know, here's some veggies from from the garden. Um we're here for you. And, you know, then we dropped off some soup and they gave us a quiche in return. And, and look, we don't have to be living in each other's pockets, but just knowing that you have those relationships turned on rather than off are really important to, to our wellbeing and really important for um, healthy community life. Maybe that, maybe that's the good thing about 2020. I wonder if it might have helped us connect or just talk with someone that we've thought about getting in touch with for ages. Now, it wouldn't be an episode of Health Speak if we didn't check in with fitness instructor Kylie Moore. And this idea that groups and clubs are about much more than just what's in their title isn't lost on Kylie. 
You know, we've had a lot of people that never left the house and they started coming to the classes and now all of a sudden they come to classes, they go do their charity work at Neighbourhood House or they go and do the park run and they volunteer and, you know, they, they're joining other groups like the Bowls group. They're just, you know, connecting more with, with everybody within the community and, and their whole life changes just for the better when they're able to do stuff. And it's those little steps of just starting with one class and going, oh, you know, this group think isn't so bad these people aren't so scary we can get out we can do that like and that's what it's all about so knowing that coming to your class might be one of the only things that some of your clients do um, in a week or, or, or you know a social thing that they do do you feel a bit of a responsibility to make sure that they have a really good time while they're there Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, they're part of our family and they are your family. You get to know them really, really well. If somebody doesn't turn up, I find I'm texting them, are you okay? You're right. <laughs> you know, because, you know, especially if they're coming all the time. So, um, yeah, you do feel a responsibility. Um, I like to make sure everybody's having a good time because that's what makes them keep coming back. You know, it's not just. Um, it's not just about the physical aspect of it. It's more that mental and emotional aspect, really. Um, that's probably even more important than the physical aspect, if, if I can say that. Yes, you sure can, Kylie. And what you've got me thinking is, does that mean that in some cases we really are getting more than we signed up for, but in a good way? Now, I just want to check back in with Nick, the sociologist, because I'm conscious that for some of us, we might be thinking, well, I haven't called that person or I haven't messaged them, but I have been commenting on their social media posts. Does that count? Let's find out. Interestingly, social media comes up a lot. Obviously, there's a whole debate about the extent to which social media helps keep us connected or whether it makes us lonelier or what is the, you know, is it good for for our social lives? Um, I've read some evidence, some early stuff that social media helps provide uh, short-term emotional support, but in the end can feel more isolating. Um, and I think we perhaps have, have sensed that as we've moved to working from home, video conferencing, and we're lacking that face-to-face contact. The virtual stuff is helpful and it's better than nothing, but it's still not the same as face-to-face contact. Now, I don't reckon you're hugely surprised by this, but I also don't reckon that there's many of us who haven't wondered how we'd be getting through this pandemic without the internet. I mean, you're using it right now to listen to this. But of course, for some people, that is a reality. They aren't connected in that way. So let's put technology aside. Have you noticed that another way people are connecting is through food? Shopping for others, swapping food, cooking for others. Now, assuming that you've considered all the hygiene and safety stuff, I thought we'd get a few other skills for our COVID kits that will make sure that all that effort you're putting in doesn't go to waste. It's over to dietitian Nairi Hobbins. What, what's really important to remember is that almost every health message that you hear in the general stream um, is for people who are younger. It, it, they, it's great for them. You know, like most things are aimed at the 20, 30, 40 year olds. 
for a whole sorts of reasons. But some of those messages are not helpful if you're instead 70 plus. So if you're cooking a meal for someone who's older and it's the same as your family meal, your family meal for younger people probably has to be lots, plenty, plenty of vegetables, um, plenty of bulk, I suppose, without too much. You don't, you don't need as much protein because you don't need as much and because you're building muscle quite easily. An older person proportionally, if they've got a smaller appetite, the protein can't get smaller and the calories can't get that much lower. So what you need to think of is when you're taking that meal for the older person, making sure that that one that's going to your neighbour has plenty of protein in it and don't skimp on the, the kilojoules. You know, it can have extra, say, cheese, which is a high protein and a high calorie food and extra even cream and those sort of things because or butter or whatever because that boosts up the kilojoules that someone who's got a tiny appetite needs that extra boosting of both the protein and the calories. So when you're taking a meal, thinking about the protein foods and thinking about, you know, our comfort food is often something we remember from our childhood. And for me, um, I might like something from my childhood, but that's different to what my mother, who's 87, likes from her childhood. So if you're making a meal for someone, lots of old, lots of older people are, love to, you know, embrace new foods and different foods and stir fries and whatever, but some of them actually would really prefer to go back to that more traditional style. And if someone's got a cognitive impairment, they may not necessarily recognise I don't know, quinoa salad or something that seems right, you know. And it, so you don't want to be the the most important thing is that the food that's provided goes in someone's mouth and it might look good, but if it goes into their house and they go, hmm, not quite sure what that is, and it sits aside, then it hasn't been of benefit. And also just be aware that you have to make sure that you prepare it carefully and that you've done all the hand washing and that you're, you know, that the whatever container it goes into has been carefully sanitised in whatever way so that you're not actually unintentionally passing on issues. It's so obvious when you say this stuff. You mentioned there that quite often older people have less of an appetite. Mm. Mm. Um, How common are you finding that with all the other stresses that we're dealing with, it means that perhaps people aren't cooking for themselves and they aren't eating as they're meant to because it's just too hard? Very common. Uh, people say to me all the time, Penny, I'm much older and I'm not doing that very much, so I don't need to eat very much. But that's just so untrue. And so I get it. I get that it's difficult. Um, my own mother says it to me. And I often say, Mum, go to the shelf and pick up my book and read that chapter again and remind yourself <laughs> this is what I do. You know what my job is, Mum? <laughs> Listen to me. I'm the expert here. Other people's mothers listen to me. (laughs) And now all the listeners of this podcast have listened to you too, Nairi. Thank you. So in this episode, we've filled up our COVID kits with some skills that'll help us check in on others during a pandemic. On our next episode, we're going to check in on, deep breath, our finances, how they're going now and into the future. 
It's a very boring uh, thing to do, um, but the old budget is the best way of, of starting out. Um, everything focuses around your personal cash flow. So I, I don't like the word budget because to me it seems restrictive. I, I use the word priority planner instead. Oh, priority planner. I like yeah, that. It's a bit more positive, but I also think that you know, really um, you, you can afford to do whatever you want, but... It's what you prioritise. So if the priority is putting food on the table over paying off a fancy car, then you're going to do that. Uh, Actually, thinking about where we're spending our money can always be a little bit confronting. But if you need a prod to do this thinking, both at an individual and community level, then next episode is one for you. As we continue to fill up our COVID kits with the life skills we need to live well during a pandemic. Thanks to Bell Bay Aluminium via the Georgetown Council as part of the Healthy Georgetown Project. 